You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. So please grab your Bibles and open with me. Again, we're in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you, as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church family. It's so good to be with you as we turn to God's word for comfort, for exhortation, and for hope. And, uh, It probably goes without saying, but I long for that day when we will all be together in person, being able to worship God in in song, in scripture, and in prayer. We as a country have passed a significant milestone with over 500,000 dead from COVID-19. I think this is a time for us to continue praying for everyone that has lost loved ones, that we would continue to love our neighbors and support frontline workers and those struggling in this time, struggling with isolation, with loneliness, would God continue to be our ever-present help? And we look, would we look to his word for comfort and solace? This Black History Month as well, we, we remember the life and legacy of Dr. Bruce L. Fields, who passed away last year after a long battle with brain cancer. I had the privilege of having him at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and learned a great deal from him about the importance of asking tough questions of thinking deeply about the critical issues that we face, and also drawing from rich theological traditions all over the world. I can only imagine him now basking in God's presence and so grateful for how God used him to spur me on in the faith and prepare me for pastoral ministry. Today, we turn to chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. Written by the Apostle Paul, it's as as if, though, this letter could have been written to the church today. I must warn us, though, parents especially, that we are covering some some tough stuff in today's text, just as a, a heads up for those that have kids nearby. But we'll see that Paul, the author of Ephesians, doesn't pull any punches. He calls out specific sins that continue to plague the broader church today. And so... As we turn to God's word here this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Our Father, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We praise you that you have set your glory above the heavens. 
When we look at all that you have made, all the mighty works of your fingers, we are blown away that you are mindful of us, God, that you care for us. We praise you for creating us in your image, for crowning us with your glory and honor. And wherever we find ourselves today, Lord, even in the points of pain in our lives, we pray that you would meet us, that you would speak to us with your unchanging words, your words of truth. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The story is told of a young boy whose mother baked an amazing batch of chocolate chip cookies. Maybe you can smell them right now, imagine them. She placed them in a cookie jar on the counter and gave specific instructions to her children to not touch them until after dinner. Not a lot of time passed before she heard the sound of the the jar of the lid coming off and she called out to, to her son, what are you doing? And his response from the other room, I'm not touching the cookies. When she rounded the corner and, and saw her son, he was up on the counter with his hand in the jar, hovering by inches over those chocolate chip cookies. The fact of the matter is that there are open cookie jars all around us and keeping our hands out of the cookie jar has been a problem that has plagued the church. Even when Paul wrote here in the first century, He wrote to newer believers in Jesus Christ in this great city of Ephesus, this cosmopolitan port city, a city known too for its worship of the fertility goddess Artemis. Not only was was ritual prostitution a way of life in Ephesus, but there was just a broader acceptance in the culture to sexual perversion. Ephesus could easily stand for any global city in today's world, much like Chicago. And into this setting and among those who have been called out of their former way of life, Paul writes Ephesians 5 verses 1 through 6, words that could just as easily be written for the church today. What we'll see is this, this core truth, that among those who are called to imitate God and walk in love, There should be no room for immoral conduct or communication. For those who practice such things are excluded from the kingdom and under God's wrath. Paul will drive this big idea home by providing two parallel commands, two parallel behaviors, and two parallel consequences. So that's how we're going to approach the text here this morning, beginning with those two parallel commands found in verses 1 through 2. The first of those commands being to be imitators of God. Verse 1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. By saying therefore here, Paul grounds this call to imitate God in what he has just said in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. And if you look back to those few verses there, Paul has outline how God's sanctifying power and presence transforms every aspect of our beings, our our mouths, our hearts, our hands, our spirits, and even our relationships. And then the command to be imitators of God here is really a way of summarizing that whole passage, the, the life of holiness that Paul envisions, and connects particularly to the charge in verse 32 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. 
Here Paul echoes words that are similar to those of Christ himself in Luke 6:36, when he says, Be merciful. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The way we are to imitate God is by virtue of our being His beloved children. His beloved children. Paul has already laid out in Ephesians how we are adopted into God's family, how we are made members of the household of God, how we enjoy intimate access to the very throne room of God, and how we serve one God and Father together. And now he adds our status as dearly loved children. You know, children imitate their parents in so many ways, for better or for worse. I keep a little notebook in the glove box of my car, and every time I fill up, I write down the date, the mileage, the gallons, and the cost. Why? Because my father does. (laughs) Maybe you've got something like that, too. Perhaps you've seen those Geico commercials about how we become like our parents. Scary, right? I know. Danielle and I have also seen how our kids imitate us, for better or for worse. Izzy, our three-year-old, uh, just a couple days ago, went to use the bathroom. And on the way, she said, I'm well hydrated. <laughs> That's my girl. That's my girl right there. We've also heard her, though, tell, tell Sam, our two-year-old, we've heard her say, how many times have I told you? Uh-oh. <laughs> so they imitate us, for better or for worse. It's true. It's true. Children imitate their parents in so many ways. We who have experienced God's love and are called to imitate Him are to further the family resemblance. We are tasked with modeling our Father's character, representing Him well to the world around us. We who have been adopted into His family, who who God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And one of the primary ways we are to imitate God is in forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Admittedly, not all of us have wanted to resemble our earthly fathers. And earthly imitation comes with baggage because the object of imitation is imperfect. But the God we worship is indeed perfect. He perfectly loves, and He calls us to walk in love following the example of our older brother, and co-heir, Jesus Christ. And so the second parallel command moves to then walking in love in verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Imitating God also means imitating Christ. Imitating Christ in his sacrificial love. And remember, to walk, as Paul uses it here in a few different places in the second half of Ephesians, means to live a life of, live a life of love. The supreme example that Paul gives is that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. In saying that Christ loved us, it doesn't mean that his love has stopped. No, this is a reference to the cross, Christ giving himself in the supreme act of his love. And the fact that he gave himself is a reminder that Jesus took the initiative in going to the cross. He willingly and knowingly laid his life down, gave of himself in love for you and for me. Christ dying for us shows us that he died both in our place and for our benefit. Paul 
will further emphasize the kind of sacrifice Christ was in saying a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Think back to the Old Testament. An offering being fragrant signifies that it is pleasing to God. And that Christ was a fragrant offering shows that his once-for-all sacrifice was indeed acceptable to God. Pretty much the entire book of Hebrews drives that point home. Tony Morita tells this story about Amy Carmichael, who so embodies this this type of self-sacrificial love. He writes this, She was a great missionary to India who spent much of her ministry caring for ill-treated children, and she saved many from forced prostitution. She she founded the the Donover Fellowship, which became a refuge for more than a thousand children. She died in India in 1951 at the age of 83. Before dying, she asked that no stone be put over her grave, but the children she cared deeply for decided to put a birdbath over her grave with the single inscription, Amma, which means mother. Carmichael lived out her saying, One can give without loving, but one cannot love without giving. Sherwood Eddy said of her, Her life was the most fragrant, the most joyfully sacrificial that I ever knew. O church, may our love, patterned after the very love of Christ, be a a pleasing aroma to God. May our thoughts, attitudes, words, and actions, yes, our entire lives, characterize, be characterized by this love. Love that is self-sacrificing. Love that is outwardly focused. Love that gives instead of takes. Love that is for the benefit of others, that cares for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Love that shares with those in need. And love that, yes, is sincere and fragrant. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul writes that we are the aroma of Christ. And so are we emitting the aroma of his love? In verses 3 to 4, Paul turns then to two parallel behaviors that are diametrically opposed to what it means to imitate God and walk in his love. Two parallel behaviors. The first is immoral conduct. Look at verse 3. It says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Just in this verse alone, Paul gives three lifestyles that are antithetical to walking in love. The first lifestyle is that of sexual immorality. New Testament scholar Doug Moo helps us understand this word here, the Greek term porneia, which Paul uses here broadly as referring to all illicit sexual acts outside of marriage, such as premarital sex, sex with prostitutes, homosexual activity, incest, and adultery. Sexual immorality treats people with contempt. It it treats them as objects of desire rather than seeing them as made in the very image of God. And it was as common in the ancient world as it is today. But Paul did not water down God's standards in order to accommodate the culture. Instead, he issues a stern warning about those who are given over to such things, a stern warning that we'll see here in a little bit. The second lifestyle is that of impurity. The word for impurity here has to do with uncleanness or filthiness. It is used especially of sexual sins, but actually begins to broaden the conversation. 
Paul has just used this term in describing those who are alienated from God. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's what he writes in Ephesians 4 verse 19. The third lifestyle gets even broader, the third lifestyle being that of covetousness. This could also be translated greed. It is an insatiable desire for more. And it includes all forms of excessive desire, including sexual lust, where we desire someone else's body for selfish gratification. In the Ten Commandments, part of the very explanation surrounding not coveting is not coveting our neighbor's wife, jealously longing for what others have. So coveting and greed, as Paul calls out in verse 5, amount to nothing short of idolatry. When Paul says these lifestyles must not even be named among you, he doesn't mean that we shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about these things or that we shouldn't confess them to one another. I actually think the NIV captures this pretty well when it says, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. We must leave no room for such vices to operate. And the reason such sins should not be named is that they are as Paul writes, they are improper among saints. Saints here referring to all believers, all of God's holy people, who Paul calls to be holy and blameless before God. He has already emphasized that certain types of behavior are worthy or fitting according to who we are now. As he begins chapter 4 and, and saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here now he points out that there are types of behaviors that are unworthy, unfitting of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are to imitate God not only in his love, but also in his holiness. 1 Peter 1 verses 15 through 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Perhaps one of the most troubling things about these lifestyles Paul warns about is how they continue to plague the church at large even today. The most recent example is everything that has come to light surrounding Ravi Zacharias, the late Christian apologist, who, and his abuse of massage therapists and his luring of victims. To make matters worse, more light has been shed on how his organization, RZIM, concealed and enabled his abuse. I admit that I am still reeling myself from all that has come to light, and one, one article that has helped me make sense of everything is called, You Are One Step Away From Complete and Total Insanity by David French. I, I commend it to you. Dear Church, 1 Corinthians 6.18 reminds us that we are to flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. Yet all too often we have our hands in the cookie jar. And while we may not have the temple of Artemis in our city, we have the internet available at our fingertips. Engaging in pornography lustfully and greedily consumes other people's bodies. We create a world of power over others for instant gratification. Even as Paul broadens this conversation of immoral conduct to include things like greed. We too desire 
objects made of silver and gold, just like in the first century, but we also desire objects made of pixels and megabytes. We need to ask God to examine our hearts, to reveal what's at the core. All too often, these behaviors, like fruit, are attached to idols, like branches, that reveal, at the root of the matter, unbelief in our hearts. And for some of us, and I'll speak to this more about what what Paul says in terms of some of the solutions here, but for some of us, we need to hear, if nothing else, that it's okay to ask for help. These sins, especially that of sexual immorality, can so often involve, involve addictions. There's so much just to unravel the sin's insidious nature, the, how it can so easily entangle us. And so it is okay to ask for help. The second parallel behavior that is closely linked to this is that of immoral communication. Verse 4 paints this, this picture vividly. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. As with immoral conduct, Paul gives three forms of immoral communication that are antithetical to walking in love. The first of that is filthiness. At its root, filthiness basically has to do with disgraceful speech, obscenity, indecency, language that brings shame. Paul has just reminded them or warned against corrupting talk in verse 29 of chapter 4. The second form of communication that he calls out here is that of foolish talk. At its root, this refers to incoherent or even slurred speech. Plutarch, a first century philosopher, uses this term to describe being drunk at a Roman banquet. The third form of immoral communication here is crude joking. This has the idea of suggestive language or verbal skill, actually, that is used to be particularly cutting and caustic. Lynn Kohick explains it this way. She says, she writes that coarse jokes twist the beautiful intimacy that God created between lovers into a transactional event as common and ordinary as shopping at the market. Paul emphasizes that these immoral forms of communication are out of place. They are not in keeping with those who God has set apart, that God has made holy. All three of these terms reveal a dirty mind that is expressed in vulgar language. In Luke's gospel, Luke 6, verse 45, Jesus says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. When we think about immoral communication, things like filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking, how closely do we flirt with the edge of what we can get away with? Think of approaching a canyon. Think of the Great Canyon and how tempting it can be to get to see how closely we can get to the edge. I think of, I think of my own son who one day we told to stay in the family room and then we found him lying on the floor reading a book with one foot still technically in the room. Still technically in the room. How do we 
push the boundaries of acceptable speech. Instead of giving voice to such things, Paul says, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. What a remarkable statement. This is probably one of the, one of the biggest takeaways that stood out to me from this passage. Paul puts forward thanksgiving as the replacement for filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking. Thanksgiving is an acknowledgement of our humble dependence upon God and a grateful response for God's good gifts. And when we express thanksgiving, we recognize that He is the source of all spiritual blessings. Thanksgiving counteracts the self-serving focus of immoral conduct and communication. What would it look like if when tempted, when encountering an open cookie jar, we instead express thanksgiving to God? Paul presents thanksgiving as the antidote, the, the opposite of both immoral communication as well as immoral conduct. All human beings, as God's creatures, should express thanksgiving to God alone, but many fail to do so. Romans 1 verse 21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Let us express gratitude for sex the way God designed it. Let us allow thanksgiving to rightly order our words and to reflect God's holiness to the world around us. Thanksgiving counteracts the self-serving focus of both immoral conduct and immoral communication. And it turns us, it turns our hearts, our thoughts, and our affections toward humble dependence upon God for all things. Well, in verses 5 to 6, Paul will go on to emphasize how seriously we must take these matters. And here is where he provides two parallel consequences. Those who practice such things are excluded from the kingdom and under God's wrath. The first parallel consequence is exclusion from the kingdom of God. Verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul here expresses with confidence what he says. He says, for you may be sure of this. Church, many people may get away with immorality on earth, but it will not remain secret forever. And who Paul has in view is everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous. That is an idolater. What might be most surprising in that phrase is the linking or the coupling of greed and idolatry. So often, greed gets a pass in our culture, in our communities, even in our churches. It, it's so a part of the air that we breathe. And yet Paul makes clear the fate of those who are given over to such things, who habitually follow after such things. They have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That phrase, by the way, the phrase, the kingdom of Christ and God, is a unique phrase that may represent 
both the present and future realities of the, of the kingdom. Christ is currently risen and reigning at the right hand of God. And he will one day hand his kingdom to God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 24 says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Those who persistently and unrepentantly give themselves over to this sort of lifestyle cannot be heirs together with Christ. It can be hard to talk about these things without being labeled judgmental. That's, a, that's definitely a reality that we face. But the church has so clearly failed in these areas and has a, a tendency to ignore issues, even issues such as greed. These vices have been at the heart of some of the, the biggest moral failures in the church Failures that have undermined our, our public witness. We need to feel the weight of this warning. And we need to heed this warning that Paul gives here. Peter O'Brien, in helping us to understand what Paul's getting at here, writes, Those who have given themselves over to immorality, impurity, and greed, even if they call themselves Christian, show that they are excluded from eternal life. The apostle is not asserting that the believer, whoever falls into these sins, is automatically excluded from God's kingdom. Rather, what is envisaged here is the person who has given himself or herself up without shame or repentance to this way of life. Like Paul, we too must not water down God's standards in order to accommodate the culture where we find ourselves. Instead, we need to warn those pursuing such things, making such things a habit that they will not be among God's kingdom. But the fact that Paul still warns the readers here of Ephesians, he warns these believers in and around Ephesus after their conversion, shows how strong the temptation can be to go back to our previous way of life, how such things rear their ugly heads in our lives. And so for true followers of Jesus Christ, who may stumble and fall along the way, God's mercy is available. Church, we need to hear that. Turn to God in repentance and express thanksgiving. Yes, thanksgiving for God's free-flowing forgiveness and mercy. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The second parallel consequence very closely tied with, the, with that of being excluded from the kingdom is experiencing the wrath of God. Verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul issues this warning, Let no one deceive you with empty words. He could very well have been referring to those who, who twist the gospel to get people to follow their way of thinking or acting. Like what Paul, one of the things that he warns the, the elders of the church of Ephesus about in Acts 20, verses 28 through 30. And who Paul has in view are what he calls here the sons of disobedience. 
That is a, a Hebrew idiom that basically means people characterized by disobedience. People who habitually live in a state of disobedient sin without repentance. Their fate, ultimately, is the wrath of God. God's wrath is his opposition to evil. His eternal opposition to everything against his design and his sheer holiness. We should not be misled into thinking that such a lifestyle has zero consequences. We need to see sin the way that God sees sin, as a personal affront to a holy God. Again, Lynn Kohick, writing on this passage, writes, The wrath of God is the counterpoint to his love, his response to that which is unlovely and unloving. We are called to reflect the character of God's kingdom and to stand firm as a witness against evil. We need to hear and heed this warning that those who have given themselves in an an unrepentant way stand at risk of being excluded from the kingdom of God and under his wrath. Church, here, here is the bottom line for us. Among those who are called to imitate God and to walk in love, there should be no hint of immoral conduct or communication. There is no room for these things. For those who practice such things are excluded from the kingdom and under God's wrath. If we take this this passage, this, this passage actually speaks very much in the broader conversation of God's gospel, God's, the flow of, of his redemption. God created us in his image, yes, and we have the opportunity to imitate him even as we engage in creativity ourselves. But it is different in the sense that only God can create everything out of nothing. And when sin and decay entered into God's good world, lives were given over to sexual immorality, impurity, greed. Speech became characterized, as we saw, by filthiness and foolish talk, crude joking. But Christ loved us and gave himself willingly as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sin. And he makes the impossible possible. He makes it possible for God to adopt us as his beloved children, to make us his holy ones. And we are called to turn to God in repentance and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. He is merciful to forgive. And when we do, we go from sons of disobedience to, yes, his beloved children. We are called to a life of imitating God, walking in love and expressing thanksgiving. Thanksgiving that is the antidote to immoral conduct and immoral communication. This ultimately is not a call to just be better, to somehow muster up the strength and energy and courage needed to turn our lives around. No, it is a call to come and die, to turn to God in repentance, to offer our lives as a fragrant offering to God. The fact of the matter is that immoral conduct and communication can still, as I mentioned before, they can still rear their ugly heads in our lives. And like Paul emphasizes, we must not allow room for them. There is no place for these things in in the community of faith, 
There should be no room for these things in our hearts. But when we stumble, when we fall, we need to repent, to turn to God, and to ask Him for the strength through His Spirit to do what we are incapable of doing ourselves. Our inheritance is ultimately the kingdom of God. God's wrath will be poured out on the disobedient, on everything that is unholy, everything that is profane, and everything that is done in secret will be brought to the light. Are you among those whose lives are characterized or given over to the kind of conduct and communication outlined here? As we sing as a church, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Are you among those who have received the Lord Jesus Christ, but find yourself stumbling and falling? Repent. Express thanksgiving. And yes, even ask for help. Ask for help among your fellow image bearers, among your fellow church members. This is part of what it means to help bear one another's burdens as well. Among those who are called to imitate God and walk in love, there should be no room for immoral conduct or communication. For those who practice such things are excluded from the kingdom and under God's wrath. Amen, church? Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the truth of your holy word, how you call us through your servant Paul to a life of imitating you, a life of, of holiness, of goodness, of love, of walking in love, the sort of love that your son so clearly demonstrated in giving himself on the cross. And so, Father, we pray that you would deliver those among us who find themselves habitually following after these things, living lives of immoral conduct and communication. Oh Lord, would they turn to you in repentance and faith and find comfort and healing and solace in you and you alone. And God, for those of us that find ourselves stumbling and falling along the way, would you draw us back to you? Would you turn us toward you in repentance? Would you break our hearts for the things that break yours? And would you cause us to pursue with all of our hearts your kingdom? Would your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Oh Lord, help us to hear and heed these warnings as well. May we not just dismiss them. May they not fall on deaf ears. But Lord, we praise you that, yes, our sins, they are many your mercy is more. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you for your holiness, your goodness, and love. And it is in Christ's precious name, Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast, And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.